Well, welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis. And this week, we find ourselves in Torah portion Vayishlach. And it includes Genesis chapters 32 through 36. In many ways, this is a continuation of the discussion from last week. Last week, I introduced the concept of cause and effect and that God is the only real true cause of anything. And any causes and effects we create are very minor ones that are subsumed into his, his greatness. Um, and this week continues that because I know that's a, a concept that can be very difficult to grasp, but it continues into this week's Torah portion. And I hope by the end of this teaching, you'll have a firmer grasp of how great our God is. And this does not release us in any way or excuse us from uh, being obedient and using our free wills wisely to do what is righteous and what is good, what's pleasing into it, in his sight. But we'll begin to strengthen our faith, begin to see him more clearly for the amazing, incredible God he is. You know what we tend to do, and I think you'll all identify with this. Um, <clears throat> our boss is at work is stingy, and we say, well, if only my boss was a little more generous and would give me a raise, then we could afford that, that uh, new car that we really need. Or um, it, if it just wasn't raining, I could get out there and get the work done outside I need to do. But this rain is causing me not to get my work finished. Or if only my spouse uh, was a better cook if she was, uh, did better housework or my spouse picked up after himself, I'd be happier. I just wouldn't be so grumpy. And what happens when we do this, and we all do, every time we engage in this kind of thinking, this kind of reasoning, our faith diminishes, God grows a little smaller, and we replace him with lots of little gods. Now our boss is the cause of our misery or our joy. Now the weather is the cause of my misery or my joy. My spouse is the cause of my misery or my joy. And what happens, our faith shrinks and these other things begin to take God's place. And what we need is to realize, as Psalm 119.91 says, they stand, it's talking about the earth and the creation when you read the two previous verses. They stand this day according to your ordinances for all things, all things are your servants. That includes your boss, that includes the weather, that includes your spouse, it includes your children, it includes all the circumstances in your life. They are all God's servants. What we need are some corrective lenses. I have to wear them to, to read small print. And, uh, and most of you probably either wear corrective lenses or maybe need to. And what happens is there's reality out there, but there's a problem with my eyes, with my cornea or something that I don't perceive reality as it truly is. But when I put this between my eyes and what is out there, Things grow sharp. Things grow clear. And God, in his grace, has provided us with spiritual corrective lenses so that we can see reality as it is. Our problem is we keep losing our glasses. We continue misplacing them. And uh, in my case, when Robin sees a pair of glasses at home, they just somehow magically appear in her purse. They just poof, and they're in her purse. So when I can't find mine, they're always there with a half a dozen other pairs of glasses. But, and I'm going to hear about this later. But uh, we are always misplacing our lenses. And in our faith, we keep setting down our glasses, and we revert back to seeing other things as the causes of the issues in our lives. We need to learn to keep our glasses on and not take them off. So, uh, for example, in last week's Torah portion, Jacob makes this agreement with Laban that uh, the solid-colored sheep belong to Laban and, and the speckled, spotted, and striped sheep and goats belong to Jacob. So they separated the flocks and 
they, they part uh, quite a distance. And then Jacob comes up with this really harebrained idea. In Genesis chapter 30, Jacob then took himself, it's in verse 37, Jacob then took himself fresh rods of poplar and hazel and chestnut. <clears throat> he peeled white streaks in them, laying bare the white of the rods. And he set up the rods which he had peeled in the runnels, in the watering receptacles to which the flocks came to drink, facing the flocks so they would become stimulated when they came to drink. Then the flocks became stimulated by the rods, and the flocks gave birth to ringed ones, speckled ones, and spotted ones. And, um, and so it goes on to talk about how his, his sheep and his goats were striped or ringed and spotted and speckled. Now, possibly there's some scientific reason why these rods would stimulate the sheep to reproduce though normally sheep don't need any kind of outside stimulation to do that. So the thinking is, is that Jacob reasoned that if they see striped rods when they are mating, then they will produce striped sheep, striped goats, spotted and speckled goats. And that just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> commentators have wrestled with this passage over and over and over. But in, jo in Jacob's mind, this would cause that. If I do this with these, these uh, saplings and put these rods there, then the effect will be that the sheep and goats are born with stripes and spots and speckles. But the thing is, it didn't work. And we find this out in the next chapter. Go to chapter 31, and beginning in verse 6. It says, Jacob calls his, his wives together, and he's getting ready to leave Laban to sneak off. And he tells him, now you have, have known that it was with all my might that I served your father. Yet your father mocked me and changed my wage ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he would stipulate spotted ones shall be your wages, then the entire flock bore spotted ones. And if he would stipulate ringed ones shall be your wages, then the entire flock bore ringed ones. Thus, God took away your father's livestock and gave them to me. Somehow, Jacob came to the awareness that it wasn't these striped rods. It was God who did it. A lot of us, we have striped rods in our lives that we think are going to produce a particular effect. But God is the one who is the supreme and utter cause of all things. Some people might think of Moses when, uh, when the sea was parted, God told him to hold your, your rod out over the, the, uh, the water and it'll part. And some people might look at that and think, oh, it was Moses' staff that caused the waters to part. No, God caused the waters to part. But he did ask Moses to, um, to do this one act of obedience because there are teachings there about the staff and the parting of the waters that God wanted to teach us. But God was the cause, not Moses' staff. When Yeshua turned water into wine over in John, I think it's in chapter 2, um, that we think that's such a great miracle, and it was. But the thing is, water turns into wine all the time. In fact, all wine comes from water. It's just that normally God uses a grapevine to take the water up out of the ground and then turn it into grape juice, which becomes wine. We don't think of that as a miracle because it happens all the time. But since Yeshua in John 15 does call himself the vine, it only makes sense that he could also take water and turn it into wine. But we call the one a great miracle, but the other is commonplace. But when we really see God as the cause of all things, then even a grapevine is a great miracle in our eyes. Because remember, the spiritual person sees God everywhere and in everything. And no wonder the spiritual person's filled with joy 
because they're constantly aware of God's interactions in this world and in his own life. So here's something I want us to do. Here are some corrective lenses for us. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah. We'll come back to Genesis in a moment, but turn to Isaiah 44. We'll begin there, chapter 44, and in verse 24. Whenever I lose my spiritual glasses and I start blaming this or that thing or this or that person for my unhappiness, if I go back to this passage, it's like putting my glasses back on and seeing things correctly again, and I'm once again, I find my joy restored. In Isaiah 44, verse 24, and here is the passage on the screen. Thus says Adonai, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. In other words, it's not your parents who caused you. God caused you. He used your parents, but he was your cause. He's your creator. He's the one who formed you in the womb. And God says, I, Adonai, am the maker of all things. He makes all things. He might use people, but it's still him who does it. A surgeon may use a scalpel, but we praise the surgeon and not the scalpel. Stretching out the heavens by myself. Oh, it wasn't the Big Bang. It wasn't because the planet was hot and then it cooled and water evaporated and made clay. No, God did it. And spreading out the earth all alone, frustrating the omens of boasters. We're surrounded by boasters all the time. And they try to tell us what's going to happen. Uh, when there, whenever there's an election, there's some people boast, so-and-so is going to win and so-and-so is going to lose, and God frustrates their omens. This happens all the time. Making fools out of diviners, people who think they can read the signs and predict what's going to happen because they think, if I understand the causes, I can predict the effect, and God says he frustrates the omens of boasters, making fools of diviners, causing wise men to turn backward. People who claim because they're so wise, have so much experience, they can tell you what's going to happen based on the causes they see around them. And he makes everything to turn backward on them, and then they have to make excuses for why things didn't pan out the way they predicted. And turning their knowledge, excuse me, turning their knowledge into foolishness. Some people think because of their vast knowledge, they know exactly how something should be done to produce an effect. And God turns it into foolishness. But go on down a little bit further. Go down to verse 26, the first part. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. That's what God does. He confirms the words that he has spoken to his servants. And he performs the purpose of his messengers. God is the cause, not other things. He can use all kinds of things, but he can do things without using anything else. But all things are his servants. Going down to verse 28. Now, this is fascinating. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, Cyrus was the king of the media Persian Empire. But this prophecy was written more than a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. The people of Israel were going to be going into a Babylonian exile for 70 years. And it would be Cyrus who would rise to power to become the king, who would write an edict, that, a decree that the Israelites were free to go back home to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, its walls, and restore its temple. Cyrus. But a hundred years before he's born, even before the people of Israel go into their Babylonian exile, God names Cyrus by name. And look what he says. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And as we continue right on into chapter 45, verse 1, Thus says Adonai to Cyrus, his anointed, 
whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open the doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And I'm sure Cyrus, when he was born and accomplished all these great things, thought, I'm the man. I'm the guy who makes all this happen. But if he cared to read the scriptures, I don't know that he ever did, he'd find out it wasn't him. He wasn't the cause. God was the cause. And verse 2, let's go on to verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Adonai, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant. So Cyrus, I raise you up as this great, mighty king for the sake of this little people over here, the people of Israel. And Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a little a title of honor, though you have not known me. That is absolutely incredible. Amazing. And then we go on to verse 5. And here it is on the screen. I am Adonai, and there is Ain Od. And you can see the phrase Ain Od here at the bottom of the screen. Ain Od. Most translations say there's no other God. But Ain Od means basically there's none else, or there's nothing else. Um, during the years of famine, Elijah commanded the widow to have her son gather as many um, vessels as she could, and she kept filling the vessels with oil from her, her little container of oil, and they kept being filled and filled and filled. And she had all these vessels of oil. And then she told her son, bring me another one. And he says, Ain owed. There is nothing else. There are no more. They're gone. And five times, I'm sorry, uh, I think six times in this passage, yes, six times in chapter 45, God says, beside me, there is Ain owed. There's nothing else. There's no one else. He's telling us, I am the supreme cause of all effects. It may look like other things are causing effects, but I am the cause of the effects. There is no one else besides me. There is nothing else. Nothing happens in this universe without me being behind it in some way. I use the tools. All things are my servants, but I am the cause. Not your boss, not the weather, not your spouse. I am behind all of those. But let's read the passage. I am Adonai and there is none else. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is nothing else. Ain owed besides me. I am Adonai and there is Ain owed. There is none else. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating evil. I am Adonai who does all these things. Now we need to comment on that word evil there because the word evil is the word ra in Hebrew. And when the Bible uses the term evil, it does not mean wickedness. God does not create wickedness. He will raise up people who will perform wicked deeds that even God can use. But when it comes to evil, it means calamity. It means unpleasantness. It means pressure. When you are ill, according to Scripture, that distress in your body is, is evil. It's raw. It's not wicked. It's not sin. But it's something that's very unpleasant. And God says, I am the one who creates well-being, and I create all the unpleasantness as well. This is why, as we look at this, and I often say, pain is only pain. And all pain is birth pain. And we should not fear pain. We should go through it if God ordains it and come out the other side. Because God wants to accomplish something through that. But when we live in our lives in pain avoidance mode, we will create more pain for ourselves. I forget who it was who said it, says we can choose to live happily or we can choose to live miserably, 
but the amount of work remains the same. In other words, it's just as much work to be miserable as it is to be happy. So we might as well choose to be happy even when we're going through distress. If we go on a bit further, um, go down to verse 15. Isaiah 45, 15. And Isaiah is speaking now to God. He says, truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, Savior. Never forget that verse. He is a God who hides himself. He chooses not to make himself evident, but he reveals himself through his word. And if we choose to look at reality through the corrective lenses of his word, we will realize that though I cannot see him with my eyes, I don't walk by sight anyway. I walk by faith, and I know he's there. I know he's there at the controls. I know he is running the world and he's doing it perfectly and everything is going according to schedule, according to plan because his intention cannot be frustrated as Job says. And then go on down to verse 22. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is a no, there is none other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, only in Adonai are righteousness and strength. Only in Adonai are righteousness and strength, not in anything else, in him. Men will come to him. And all who are angry at him will be put to shame. If we are all honest with ourselves, we've all been angry with God. And sometimes I think he'd rather us be angry with him than pretend he doesn't exist. Because at least if you're angry, you're acknowledging his existence. But we can't stay angry. We must realize that behind his motives for whatever he does in our lives, no matter how unpleasant, is a father's heart of love and a desire to form us and fashion us into his ideal, into his image, and to make us from Jacob, a grasper, into an Israel. He wants us to come to maturity. He wants us to be more like Messiah. And Hebrews tells us even of Yeshua that he was made perfect, made complete through the things that he suffered. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So suffering's a part of this world. And uh, let it have its work in you. Because if we stay angry at God, we will be so ashamed of ourselves when we look back and realize it was his loving hand every step of the way, wanting to perform something good and something fruitful, something life-giving in our lives. All who are angry at him will be put to shame. And Adonai, all the offspring of Israel, will be justified and will glory. Now, I just skipped through a few verses from this amazing chapter. But if you begin in Isaiah 44 with verse 24, and you go on through chapter 46 down, uh, yeah, through chapter 46, you'll find your glasses. And if you really take it to heart what it is saying, then you're going to see things more clearly. Things aren't going to be fuzzy, but you're going to be able to put these on. Ah, now I understand what's really going on. And you'll be able to perceive God in a way you couldn't perceive him before because you know that he's there. You know that he is the one who runs the world. Okay, now let's get to our, our Torah portion in Genesis. So I want us to go to chapter 32. Chapter 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, Jacob has left Laban in the, in the previous chapter, and now he's, he's heading home, and he's concerned Because the last time he was at home, about 22 years earlier, Esau had sworn that he was going to kill Jacob. As soon as Isaac was dead, 
I'm going to kill my brother because he, he cheated me out of the birthright and out of the blessing. And Esau was angry. He was a killer. And so it says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother, to Esau. Moreover, he is heading toward you and 400 men are with him. 400 men. So you can imagine these 400 men plus Esau all on horseback. This does not sound like a welcoming committee, does it? This sounds like a military maneuver. This sounds like war. This sounds like Esau is serious of taking vengeance on his twin brother. So, Jacob didn't have his glasses on. He'd misplaced them. But he does do something that shows that he has learned, that he is wanting to hold on to faith. And God's going to use this experience to truly strengthen his faith. His faith. Because in verse 8, it says, Jacob became very frightened, and it distressed him. So he divided the people with him and the flocks, cattle, and camels into two camps. For he said, if Esau comes to the one camp and strikes it down, then the remaining camp shall survive. Then Jacob said, and he begins to pray, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Adonai, who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives and I will do good with you. See, he's recalling, I'm following God's instructions. He told me to go home. And he said he's going to do good with me. If Esau comes and kills me and my family, that's not good. But God said he's going to do good. I'm walking in obedience. And in Jacob's mind, he cannot reconcile this this, looks like a coming attack from Esau, these 400 men on horseback. And God's promises, it looks like the two cannot mix. They can't be the same thing. We've all been in a similar position where we know what God has said to us and what we're to do, and yet the circumstances look so dire, there's no way this is going to work. So he prays and he reminds God of what God has said. And then in verse 11, he says, I have been diminished by all the kindness, all the grace and by all the truth that you've done, your servant. Because as Jacob looks over the past 22 years, how when he left home, he had nothing. And now 22 years later, he has four wives. He has 11 sons, and we don't know how many daughters. And there's another son on the way. And he has servants and maidservants. He has camels and donkeys and and numerous sheep and goats. He is an extremely, extremely wealthy man by the day standards. And he realizes all of this wealth has come to him because of God's grace and God's truth because God told him he was going to prosper him and return him home wealthy. And he says, I'm diminished. I'm just, I feel so small, so undeserving. And and there's something about when we perceive God's kindnesses and understand that he is the source of them. It's so humbling. Because why would God do this for me? And that's how Jacob felt here. It says, For with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps, two huge camps, So he says, rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and strike me down, mother and children. And you had said, and he's quoting God here, I will surely do good with you, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which is too numerous to count. You know, unlike Abraham, who had no children, And he had to often remind himself of God's promises. I'll make your offspring like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of heaven. And he's still waiting for one child to come along. Whereas with Jacob, he has many children. But it looks like they're all going to be killed. 
But he had to remind himself of the same promise that God had given to Abraham. I'll make your children like the sand of the seashore and, your, and like the stars of the sky. We'll be able to count them. So with Abraham, is waiting for something to happen. And with Jacob, it's hoping that something doesn't happen. So very opposite circumstances. And so let's move on down to verse 23. He, he divides up the camps and he starts to send them across and, and uh, he gives them instructions as to what to say when they meet Esau. And we get to verse 23, it says, They got up that night and took his two wives, his two handmaids, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the, the Jabbok or Yabbok. What's interesting about that name, this Jabbok River, which uh, it was just a tributary that ran into the Jordan River. The name of the river means he will empty out. And when you read verse 24, it makes sense that this event that's about to happen would happen here. Verse 24 says, And when he took them and had, led them, uh, had them across over the stream, he sent over all his possessions... Jacob was left alone. He's emptied out. It's just him. He's now back in the same position that he was in when he first left home to go to his uncle Laban in Padanaram. He's all alone. It's just him. But that time he had a, a dream where he saw a ladder with angels ascending, descending on it and up at the top, there's God. This time he's left alone. It says, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. So who is this man? Well, who is it in Jacob's mind? He knows Esau's coming his way. In his mind, Esau still hates him, still wants to kill him. And so Jacob's all alone. The sun's gone down, and boom. Somebody jumps him in the night and begins to wrestle him. Who else could it be but Esau? But it's not Esau. It kind of reminds me of when uh, Jacob deceived his own father Isaac by pretending he was Esau. This time, God is playing a little trick on Jacob by pretending he's Esau. So he wrestled with him until the break of dawn. And when he perceived that he could not overcome him, he touched or struck the socket of his hip, of Jacob's hip. So Jacob's hip socket was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Then he, this opponent that Jacob's wrestling with, says, Let me go, for dawn has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, well, what is your name? He replied, Jacob. He said, no longer will it be said that your name is Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have overcome So when the sun came up, Jacob had a, a startling revelation. This isn't Esau. This is God I'm wrestling with. It's one of the most astounding events in Scripture, in my mind. You know, I, you think that God making a blood covenant with Abraham, treating Abraham as an equal, because that's only... Uh, the only ones who would ever make blood covenants are equals. And God makes a blood covenant with Abraham, treating him as an equal. No wonder the scriptures call Abraham God's friend. But here, God is treating Jacob as an equal. He wrestles with him. And it's kind of a stalemate until the sun comes up. And then God has accomplished his purpose. And then he he does something to Jacob's hip and dislocates it. Now, in a wrestling match, the whole point in a wrestling match, if you've ever seen one, is to get total control over your opponent. Absolute control. 
So Jacob's wanting to get total control over his opponent, who he thinks is Esau. But God is wanting to get total control over his friend, over this one he loves, has established the covenant with. The same covenant he established with Abraham, he established with Isaac and now with Jacob. And in a, a physical wrestling match, you win when you get total control over your opponent and you pin him to the mat. But when we wrestle with God, we win the match when we surrender to him. And so Jacob holds on to him. He realizes this is not my enemy. So bless me. I want your blessing. This is one of the most important statements that I've probably ever made in a teaching. The God we embrace in the light is the same God we fought in the dark. Is there a dark area of your life right now that you're fighting, thinking you're fighting an enemy? Maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's with your children, maybe it's fighting with an addiction, maybe it's fighting with uh, some authority in your life, uh, maybe it's health or finances. I don't know what the situation is, but what is it you are fighting, that you're wrestling with, that you're trying to get control of in your life? I promise you when the lights come on and you get a good look, and you get your glasses on and can see what it is you're wrestling with, you're going to see the face of God. And you're going to realize all along it was God who I was struggling with and who I must now surrender to. So we pick it up in verse 30. Then Jacob inquired, and he said, Divulge, if you please, your name. And he said, I think God chuckled here. Why then do you inquire of my name? You don't need to ask who I am. You know who I am. And he blessed him there. Now it says that, God, that Jacob had, had striven or, or wrestled with, with God and with man. Who had Jacob wrestled with or strived with previously? Well, his brother Esau. He strove with him when he, when he um, deceived his father and, and it got the, the blessing. That was a contest. But he really strove with Laban. Laban, his uncle Laban, who cheated him out of, uh, into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, who kept changing his wages, who kept trying to use and control Jacob but never quite could because God continued to bless Jacob. So Jacob had been wrestling with Laban for 22 years, and now he wrestles with God, and God changes his name and blesses him. Now, what's interesting is that in Hebrews 12, 3, it says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his strength he contended with God. And that word contended is a very interesting word. That word contended is the word sarah. Shin resh hey. And those first two letters, uh, that's where you get the Shin resh of Israel. So he contended with God. Yisrael means he wrestled with God. He contended with God. It can also mean Yeshar El, straight to God. It can also mean Sar means prince, can also mean prince of God. But the name, as it's defined here, is because he strove with God. He contended and wrestled with God. Now, if you're thinking, well, that looks just like the name Sarah, Abraham's wife, you're exactly right. It is exactly the same word. Sarah, her name means princess, from Sar, a feminine form of Sar, and Sarah is a princess. But it also means to contend, to wrestle. So we have to ask ourselves, if God, who is the supreme cause of all things, has changed name, Sarai's name to Sarah, 
And Sarah means to contend, and that's what Jacob did when he wrestled with God and wrestled with, with Laban, basically. Why did God choose to make Sarah's name the same as the word here for contend? We have to ask ourselves, what was Sarah's contention? What did she wrestle with in her life? And I think the answer is obvious. She was barren. She's absolutely, completely barren. And after 10 years of marriage, if a wife did not produce an offspring, uh, in that time, a husband was perfectly uh, permitted to, it was completely permissible to, to divorce the wife. But Abraham kept her. And until the age of 90, Sarah was barren. And yet God had made promises that through Abraham and Sarah, he would bring forth children, that Sarah herself would bear a son and their seed, their offspring would be like the sand of the shore and stars of heaven. And Sarah had this internal wrestling match with God for most of those 90 years. So her wrestling match was quite different than Jacob's. Her wrestling match was internal. Of course, she came up with that plot for Abraham to take her maidservant Hagar and have a child through her, and that was, uh, that was a train wreck. But God kept his promise. But so many times, our wrestlings with God are completely internal ones of simply holding on to his word, holding on to who we know he is, holding on to the fact that everything he does is an expression of love, even if we have to wait for years and years and years. We must have such a faith that when God says, sit in the dark outside the door for a while. We're content to do so because we know that in time God will open the door and welcome us in. And so if it's his will for us to sit in the dark, in the cold, alone, we can still know that his heart has not changed toward us, that he is a God of love, that he'll take care of us and he'll bring about what he wants to accomplish. And somehow it's necessary for us to sit in the dark for a while, maybe in pain, maybe to go through an experience like Job's. It's okay. God's in control. You know, speaking of Job and thinking of cause and effect, you know, his three so-called friends, almost through the entire book, they're trying to think of the cause for this effect. Job, you must have done something wrong for God to treat you this way. And they're, they're trying to sort through what is, what's the cause, Job, that you've done that brings about this effect from God. And there wasn't anything Job had done. There was no cause except God did it. And at, near the end of the book, all Job wants is just to have an audience with God to get an answer to why. And you know, he never gets his question answered. He never does. But God does show up. And when he encounters God, he withdraws his question. It's almost as if he forgets what his question was. Because he's so filled with awe of his creator and of his God and Lord. He doesn't have to ask anymore. It's kind of like God saying, Jacob, why do you need to ask my name? It's like, just think about what has just happened here. You have wrestled with your creator. So let's continue on down. And um, verse 31. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Why? For I have seen God, El, face to face. Pene is the word for face. So Peniel means face of God. I have seen God face to face, yet my soul was saved. 
The sun rose for him as he passed Penuel, and he was limping on his hip. Therefore, the children of Israel do not eat the displaced sinew on the hip socket to this day because he struck Jacob's hip socket on the displaced sinew. The word for face, pene, is found in some form or other in chapters 32 and 33 uh, 18 times. 18 times. 18 is the number of life, but 18 times in 32 and 33, some form of the word pene in the Hebrew appears. So let's consider something here. This wrestling match changed Jacob in two ways. What are the two ways in which this wrestling match changed him? And you want to pause the tape and think about it. Uh, Do so. But I'm going to go ahead and, and go with the answers here. First of all, his hip is displaced. His hip. And as a result of that, he walked with a limp the rest of his life, as far as we know. And the second thing, his name was changed. It went from Jacob to Israel. He was broken, and then his name is changed. A change of name means a change of character, a change of the very essence of the man himself. And this is why we get new names, because if we truly have changed and God has made something new out of us, we need a new name. We see God changing names often in Scripture. He changes Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, and uh, Hosea to Joshua, Yehoshua. But he does this when a person is broken. It's like he has to break us first, our willfulness, our resistance. He has to make us pliable in his hands and submissive to him. And when we do that, things change. And so Jacob's name is changed here. And then the most amazing thing happens. And here's another thing that is so important before we get to, to this. He says, I said, all of our wrestling with God is a struggle to know his name. All of your struggle and striving with God is a struggle to know his name. To truly know his name. You say, well, I know his name. It's yod heh It's It's the I am that I am. Okay, good. You've got it up here, but do you know it here? Because to know God's name, to know that he is the I am, means there is an ode. There's nothing else. And so when you look at your boss and think, oh, he's the cause of my misery, God says, no, 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 put your glasses on. I am the cause of your misery. And actually your misery is your reaction to what I want to do in your life. When we look at the weather and say, oh, that's the cause of my, my misery, God says, put your glasses on. I am, because I'm the one who controls the weather. And when we look at the circumstances in our lives, what we're wrestling with, what we blame as the cause for why I am the way I am, or we look at the things in our lives and we give them credit for the good things, God says, no, 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 no. You you need to wrestle. You need to realize who I am. The lights need to come on in your life. You need to look in my face and realize what you're wrestling with. Who you're wrestling with is me. All of our wrestling with God is a struggle, a struggle to know his name. Now, this is revealed in several things here. If we, if we take the name Jabbok, Yabbok, which is the name of the river, which means empty out, and God had to empty out Jacob, uh, the numerical value of Yavik, and there it is there, um, it's Yud, Beit, Kof. Yud is 10, Beit is 2, Kof is 100, it equals 112. But the rabbis, because they do this sort of thing all the time, take the name Elohim, and when you calculate the numerical value of those letters, it's 86. 
And then here's God's four-letter name, yod heh vav The numerical value there, of course, is 26. And we know from the first chapter of Genesis and the opening chapters of Genesis and all through that when you find the word Elohim, that is the name that is used when God is expressing himself according to strict justice. But yod heh vav is used when God is expressing his attribute of mercy. And these two attributes of God are used in perfection and total balance. Perfect justice, but also chesed and mercy. And of course, when you add up these two numbers, they come out to 112. Because everything that happened at the River Jabbok, the whole wrestling match, the change of the name, the limp, all of these things, the culmination of Jacob's life so far, was God himself got himself involved in that wrestling match. From the moment Jacob was jumped in the dark till the moment the lights came up and he saw who it was, and he was blessed. Also, you know, uh, it said that Esau was coming with 400 men, and that's, that's uh, repeated again there in chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob raised his eyes and saw, behold, Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So twice we're told there are 400 men with Esau. So 400 men plus Esau equals 401 men in total. Well, the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph, has a numerical value of 1. The last letter of the alphabet, the letter Tav, has a numerical value of 400. So 401 represents the Aleph and Tav, the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega. So in all the events at the Jabbok, the 401 men, they're all God in disguise, for you are a God who hides himself. And then what happens when Jacob meets Esau? Verse 4, Esau ran toward him, toward Jacob, embraced him, fell upon his neck and kissed him. Then they wept. So, it wasn't an attack after all. And Jacob shows no fear this time. He sees the 400 men. He sees Esau running toward him. But you know, when you've wrestled with God and you survived it, and I've seen God face to face, yet my soul is saved, Esau is not a threat anymore. And what does Jacob tell Esau? Look down at verse 3. This is what Jacob says to him. Jacob said, For I see your face as one sees the face of God. Jacob could now look at his twin brother and he could see the essence of God looking back through Esau's eyes. Jacob had put his glasses on. Now he saw reality in a whole new light. He saw it correctly and realized that God was, in, God was in the whole situation with Laban. And God had used Laban because all things are his servants. And he'd used Laban to make Jacob rich. God was in the wrestling match. God was in the 401 men. God is the ultimate cause of all these things that looked horrible, looked disastrous, looked miserable to Jacob. But they were all him. They were all God. No, Yeshua, he was, he just never lost sight of who God was and of God's presence in his life. And I love that passage in Hebrews where it says, it speaks of Yeshua being crucified. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he could see the joy. He could look through the situation he was in and see what was around the corner. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And he despised the shame. By despising the shame doesn't mean, oh, I just hate the shame. It just meant, eh, it's nothing. Shame is nothing. Just threw it behind his back. It's nothing. If we are going to endure our cross, and take the shame and the embarrassment we'll experience in life and the criticisms and, and, the, uh, and the way people will demean us. We can just throw it aside. If you want to be able to do that, you must have your glasses on so you can see the distance. 
You can see what's around the corner. You can peek into eternity when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is Lord, that Messiah is Lord. You know, with Abraham, once God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, never again, anywhere in the Bible, do you see him called Abram. Never. It's always, always Abraham. But with Jacob, God changes his name to Israel and even says, no longer will your name be be Jacob, but Israel. We still seem called Jacob over and over and over again. And then Israel, and they'll be called Jacob, they'll be called Israel. It's always back and forth. Why? Because Jacob kept losing his glasses. He kept laying them down, just like you and I do. We're so much like Jacob. You know, when you look at Abraham and the walk that Abraham had with God, what we see is God's sovereignty in just saying, Abraham, I've chosen you. I'm going to bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you, I'll curse. And it's just the way it's going to be. I'm just going to do this thing. We just see Abraham just carried along. He made some mistakes, but he just is carried along. With Jacob, we're always seeing, let's make a deal. Always seeing this having to, to strive, even from birth when he's holding on to his brother's heel. Always striving, always trying to get control. Because Abraham's walk with God is a picture of God's sovereignty. Jacob's walk with God is about me conquering myself, about me learning to control my own lack of faith, learning how to, to, to bring my soul into alignment with my loving God, my loving Father and His will. It's about me overcoming me. You know, next week we begin the story of Joseph, and that continues right on through the end of Genesis. And Just about everybody's favorite character in the Bible, when they really stop to think about it, it's Joseph. No person in the in the Bible, is more like Yeshua than Joseph. There are, are dozens, I think it's 80 or some parallels between Joseph's life and Messiah's. He's such an incredible uh, a picture of Yeshua. And just as, um, oh, I'm not going to get it now. I'll, I'll, we'll never get done. And when Jacob is on his deathbed, he, on his sickbed, about to die, He's told that Joseph's coming. And I want to finish with this verse. It's in Genesis 48 too. And then it was, when it was told to Jacob, and he's, Jacob's laying in bed, he's just sick, he's ready to die. Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. That's a very telling verse. Because when we're curled up in our pain and our illness and our weakness, we're like Jacob. But when Joseph comes into the room, when once again we draw close to Yeshua, when we put our glasses on, we become Israel. We collect our strength and we can sit up. It's such a, a beautiful verse. And it's, again, it's another example of how Jacob is always in the process of becoming Israel. And all of us are in the process of becoming like Yeshua. So, here are discussion questions for you. And you may wish to share this with your group or keep it to yourself, but take some time to, to consider this. What are you wrestling with now in your life? And how can you win the contest? I told you the secret. How do we win the contest? How do you win the contest? How do you come through this? Second question. If God is as sovereign as Isaiah describes, do we then not have free will? There's a fun one for you to discuss. Number three. If God changed Jacob's name to Israel, why is he still so often called Jacob? And number four. And we didn't discuss this at all. What lessons do you derive from chapter 32, verses 32 and 33? This is about how the sinew in, in Jacob's hip, it's probably a sciatica nerve or something, is put out a joint, and so he limped. And as a result, it says Israel, this is a tradition, does not eat that particular part of a lamb. Uh, 
So, or of any animal. So what's the lesson there? Why is that included? What lesson can we learn? Can you crack this open and discover the lesson God may want to teach you? So those are your discussion questions. And I have some other passages in the notes section that uh, you may want to look over. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much that you are our Father, you are our King, you are our Creator, our Redeemer. You are the great I Am. And beside you there is Ain Ode. There's nothing else. So Father, forgive us for all the times we elevate things in our life, good things, unpleasant things. We elevate them to little gods as if they are the causes of our grief or joys. Lord, help us to put our glasses on, to look through the eyes of faith, to see clearly that you are the cause of the unpleasantness in our life because you have something to birth through it. And of every joy, you are the author of every good and perfect gift. For you are the one who forms the light and creates the darkness. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we take these lessons of Jacob's life, these hard-learned lessons, and they're not over. They continue on to the end of the book. And, Lord, we would see what Jacob is always struggling to see, and that is that the God he holds on to in the light is the same one he fought in the dark. So, Lord, I pray, make us the people you want us to be. We'll give you the glory for it. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.